Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. Morning, church. Well, I have the privilege of reading the word. My name is Chuck Graber, and I'm looking forward to this. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So I am going to read the word of God. So if you would turn uh, to Mark 16, 9 through 20. All right, so when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. The rest returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating, and he rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all of creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on the sick people, and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. All right, thanks, Chuck. All right, if you've uh, been, uh, if you're a part of our church, a regular part of our church, you're probably like, man, when does Mark end? We've been actually walking through the Gospel of Mark for over a year um, with some breaks in between. And last week, we saw, it was synced up with Easter, and we ended with verse 8. And this, these are the last uh, verses that are in the, the Gospel of Mark. And so as we r- kind of wrap up our, our journey through this book, um, we're looking at this as an epilogue. And I put a question mark on there because how many of you in your Bibles, there's a little note before verse 9 that says, the earliest manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have these verses. (laughs) How many of you have that? And you've always been like, what does that mean? Uh, If you have a King James Bible, it doesn't say that. Um, But most uh, most modern translations, the King James Bible was written in, uh, compiled in the 1500s. do have this kind of little footnote. And in the NIV, the, these words are actually italicized. And so we didn't want to skip over this. It would have been a little easier, honestly, just to end with Easter and be like, God bless you all, Mark. Mark was great. Um, I, what I also don't want to do this morning is give an academic lecture, um, but I will be posting some things uh, uh, on our website about kind of more of the academic side of things. But we wanted to talk about this. What, what, what's up with these verses, verses 9 through 20? Um, first, it's probably a good idea just to remind us, to be reminded of how Scripture itself circulated in the first century. Um, 
that there was no Xerox machines, there was no publishing companies. Every um, part of scripture was written on what? Does anybody know? I was written on a scroll. And so if you've never seen, and there's, we, if we have some ancient scrolls, many have been found, they're in museums. But if you've never seen ancient scroll, it's pretty cool um, how it works. But it's, there's a, you know, you start at the beginning and you work your way down and to, to continue reading it, you have to continue to unroll the scroll. Similar to your phone, right? We scroll on the phone. <laughs> so in the ancient world, with the Bible, all, all of scripture was recorded, was written down on scrolls. And so you can imagine if somebody had a, a copy of, of one of the books of the Bible and um, you had a neighbor that didn't, um, then they, what they would do is they would try and figure out how to get a copy of that. But it wasn't just that like you handed it to them and they, they made a copy of it. There was a particular profession called a scribe. And scribes would take the original manuscript and then they would word for word copy it. And it was a very, uh, very meticulous um, process. Um, there was a lot of training that went into it. And so we have um, copies and copies and copies and copies and copies and copies of the original manuscripts of the Bible. That's how it is endured to this day. If you've been a part of some of our, we, we often once or twice a year will offer a how to study the Bible class. We talk about this process and why the Bible is actually more trustworthy than any other ancient manuscript ever. There's more copies of the text, the biblical text, than any other, Plato's writing, Socrates, any, any uh, the Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. There's more copies than anything else uh, in all of history. And so the Bible is the most remarkably trustworthy book um, as it relates to its, its textual um, uh, clarity and, and um, validity. So that's how the Bible was circulated. So in this particular text, there's a question. There has been a question for hundreds and hundreds of years. Is how does Mark's gospel end? Um, definitely, we can say this, definitely, without a doubt, verses 9 through 20 were added later. Without a doubt. So even if you can't read the original language this was written in, which was Greek, you can just, even from the English translation, realize the style here is different. The writing style is much different than the rest of the book of Mark. And if you've been walking through it with us, you know. You can, you can sense it, feel it right away. It's as if um, your wife had written you this long love letter and one of her, her aunties added on to it at the end. You'd be like, wait a second. You, you can identify it. This, this is not her voice. This is not how she would talk. And so um, there is no doubt in biblical scholarship that this was added. Um, most church leaders in the first century didn't acknowledge the, this text. And so the prevailing idea is that this, these particular verses were added maybe up to uh, 60 to 100 years after the original gospel of Mark was written. Um, probably, again, as those copies were circulated. Now, there's a few reasons. Why would that happen? Um, be, maybe the first answer would be because to end it at verse 8 would be pretty awkward. Look at verse 8 with me. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. That, that feels a bit like an awkward ending right after the resurrection, right? Uh, we see in Matthew's ending and Luke's ending and John's ending, there's 
there's this, um, uh, these stories of, of Jesus' appearance. There's the stories of the, the women bringing this word and disbelieved at first, afraid at first, but then joy because they see Jesus, they meet Jesus. Mark's uh, gospel, if it were to end at verse 8, feels a little bit awkward. Maybe that's why later on um, the scribes said we should add some more detail here about what happened. Maybe. We don't, we don't know for sure. There's another idea that uh, Aaron and I were talking about this this last week, that because it was written, the original manuscript that Mark wrote was written on a scroll, maybe the end of that scroll got damaged. And because of the way that scribes had to, according to the way they were trained, uh, make copies, they couldn't, they couldn't add on to it. And so the very first um, copies of, of Mark 16, 8, um, or Mark, Mark chapter 16, uh, maybe it was lost, and so the, the first generation of biblical writers just ended it there, and it was later on they decided maybe we should add to it. The other possibility is maybe Mark just didn't care. Maybe he ended it at verse 8, and he was like, y'all know what happened from here, right? Because he was not writing with, with you and me in mind. He was writing with the people that were alive at that time, that many of them had witnessed Jesus' life, and he, what he was more concerned about was telling people who didn't know Jesus before the resurrection about Jesus and about what led up to the resurrection. And so after the resurrection, he was like, yeah, you all know from there because we're living it right now. We don't know exactly why it would have ended at 8, but we do know that verses 9 through 20 are not original to Mark's gospel. So then there's the other question, why keep it? Like if for, for some time now, we've known this was kind of an, uh, an epilogue that was added on. Why keep it? If it's, if it's you know, not original. So the other question um, we, need, we need to understand here, the answer we need to know to that is that 9 through 20, all of those verses point to things that other gospels or other biblical writings affirm. So there's nothing in 9 through 20 that is discordant with what we knew happened after the resurrection. So you just look at a few examples here. Um, in uh, verse 9, we know that Jesus uh, appeared to, uh, to the women and to others. Um, verse 12, it says that Jesus appeared in different form to two people while they were walking. That's the road to Emmaus in Luke's gospel. Um, verse 14, we know that Jesus appeared to, to the disciples and, and Thomas was doubting that it was even Jesus um, verse uh, 15, um, that's the great commission that we see in Matthew 28. So as you walk through these verses, we go, okay, these, these are still true. Even though they're added on later, these, these speak to true things that happened. Um, it's not like the Book of Mormon where it's like, and then Jesus went to preach to the Native Americans in you know, the United States, right? It's not something that's totally discordant with the rest of Scripture. So, with this in mind, and we'll talk more about textual criticism in the days ahead, I was wrestling with how do you preach this? So all of these, all of these, um, these examples that are put in to the ending of Mark here, they point to other places. So we could do another month, right? And go, okay, well, let's talk about the Great Commission, and let's talk about when Jesus appeared, and from, from John's gospel or Matthew's gospel. What I want to do this morning is I just want to end with a story. Um, kind of in this epilogue. And it's a story that um, this particular verse points to, Mark 16, 12 through 13. It says, Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, 
but they did not believe in them. You know, after the resurrection, after Easter, everybody was processing things differently. You can imagine when Jesus was, had, had laid into the grave before anybody knew that he had risen again. How do you respond to something like that? We see like Peter goes back to the last thing he was doing before he met Jesus. Do you know what that was? Fishing. He went back fishing. We see, um, we see people mourning. They're just, they're just sitting in disbelief that everything had ended. But what we also see in other gospel accounts and in, in the account of Acts we see that Jesus showed up to a number of different people. And so this morning, I want to look at two people that Jesus showed up to from Luke's gospel. So our epilogue is going to take us to Luke chapter 24. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and just flip forward to one gospel to the end of, chapter, or end of Luke chapter 24. You know, there's a lot of barriers to belief in God. Some um, atheists might claim that science is their barrier. Some agnostics would say, even if there is God, he's not knowable. How can you know something that is not material or not physically present in this world? Even many churchgoers would, would say that if they're honest, they really don't know God. They know maybe about God but they don't know God in a way that they know their friends or their spouse or their parents. And so we know that there's things like skepticism and doubt or maybe hurtful experiences from people who claim to follow God that all can become very real barriers to keep people from knowing and experiencing God. And the truth is, as we live this world, there is a barrier between God and humankind. And that's exactly why Jesus came, to remove that barrier. So ever since the resurrection, which we celebrated last week, there has been this battle happening between the grace of God, which offers restoration and relationship, and the curse of sin, which continues to try to build that barrier back up. And so our mission as followers of God is to tear that wall down. And that wall being torn down, it starts with the resurrection. And so this is the story we're going to look at today, this added epilogue in Mark that Mark references that gives, I think for us today, on the other side of the resurrection, it gives us important insight and uh, a knowledge of the power of the resurrection and what we are inviting people into as followers of Jesus. So let's read this passage, one of my favorite post-resurrection stories, Mark chapter 24, verse 13. So this is after Jesus has risen from the dead. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. 
The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. And Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now they still don't know this is Jesus. (laughs) As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. Then they found the eleven and those with them assembled together, saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized them by when he broke the bread. So here's the story. There's these two men. One is identified as a man, Cleopas. Um, the other one may be uh, maybe his wife. It could be a husband and wife that are leaving Jerusalem after Jesus' death. This is after the Sabbath. And they encounter Jesus on the road, and they say, how can you be in Jerusalem and not know what has happened? So we understand from what they're saying, this is national news, right? Like everybody knows what just happened. And so when they meet this stranger on the road who's acting like he doesn't know what's up, they're pretty surprised. Jesus had a well-known reputation at that point. Now, they refer to Jesus as a prophet. And he was now dead. And I can imagine they were thinking of Jesus as that, like he had done mighty things just like other biblical characters had done, and he was dead now just like other biblical prophets and leaders in the past. They didn't know who Jesus was. And they doubted the resurrection claims of the woman, women. And we see this in uh, the other Gospels as well. Jesus addresses their doubt, essentially saying, hey, you know all of scriptures and you don't recognize that this is supposed to happen? And he even calls them foolish in that moment. And then he begins to teach them how all the Bible points toward what just happened. It's interesting to note that while the two disciples invited Jesus to eat with them, Jesus actually becomes the host when they sit down to eat. Traditionally in the Jewish culture, if somebody were to come to your house, you would serve them first. We do that in our house. When guests come over, we say, hey, you get to eat first, and we'll serve you first. Jesus, invited by them, turns the tables, and he breaks the bread. He blesses the bread, the food they're about to eat. And it is in that moment when they see him 
This type of interaction with Jesus over a meal happens again just a few verses later on, 41 and 43. You see Jesus serving the apostles. John chapter 29, uh, there's this shore, this scene on the shore with a miracle of fish, and Jesus has a barbecue ready on the shore for the disciples. And then at verse 32 ends, there's this kind of foreshadowing of the Spirit of God that would be given to all people who, who place their faith in Jesus. This foreshadowing when they say, didn't our hearts burn when we walked with him on the road? So the question I think we should ask today post-resurrection is if we encountered Jesus in this way, have we shared a meal with Jesus? Have we met Jesus in such a way that our hearts burned? You know, there's a difference between being invited to a meeting and a meal, right? I get invited to both a lot. And when somebody invites me to a meeting, I, I kind of prepare for it mentally and emotionally and, and I think, okay, what do I need to have prepared for that? When somebody invites me to a meal, I just come. I'm looking forward to it. And you know what? What I've found is if I want to get to know somebody, the best way to get to know them is over a meal or over a cup of coffee. Because meetings, they're for getting a task done or for transferring information. But meals... Meals are for building relationship. And so it's so interesting to know that it wasn't Jesus' exposition of Scripture. It says that he opened up Scripture with them. And he began to, to show them, teach them through Scripture about himself. It's interesting that it wasn't that that opened their eyes to who he was. It was the intimacy of relationship, of sitting at a table, of sharing some food that all of a sudden they saw the resurrected Jesus. So we might ask today, post-resurrection, what does our relationship with Jesus look like? Does it look more like a meeting or a meal? One of the illustrations that Jesus used of himself was that he is the bread of what? The bread of life. The bread of life. When I approach reading the Bible as a task, uh, I'm doing it more like a meeting, aren't I? But when I read the Bible for relationship to get to know God, then it's a lot more like sitting with him at a table. And imagine if people approached uh, dating or engagement like some sort of dutiful transfer of knowledge, <laughs> like a meeting. It'd be kind of hard to really get to know somebody, wouldn't it? You can get the, the facts and the data. You build up the persona of who that person is, but to really get to know their heart, to really feel close to them in relationship, it takes a little bit more than that. My wife and I, our relationship, uh, our dating and our engagement was long distance. By the time we got married, we had actually been apart physically than we'd been, uh, more than we'd been together. And so a lot of our relationship was on the phone, was writing emails. We even wrote, oh, this is kind of crazy, makes me sound old. We even wrote letters. Uh, people still do that. I don't think so. And when we would, when we would write to each other, I didn't open that, that letter and look for the bullet points, right? All right, just tell me what I need to know. I would read it, and I would, I would feel like her presence with me. I could imagine her voice and the smile on her face as she 
wrote those things. And I wouldn't just read it once. I'd read it over and over and over again. One of the things I love about digital communication is I actually still have a folder in my old Yahoo email. Anybody have Yahoo email? Uh, my old Yahoo email that says Jess. And in it is a bunch of emails that we wrote to each other before we got married. 20 years ago. Crazy. Some of us read the Bible like that. Man, God, what do you have for me? And some of us go, give me the bullet points. When we pray out of religious habit, we often pray like we're convening a boring meeting. But when we pray real, passionate, and honest prayers, then we're at the table with Jesus, and he's there with us. If we come to worship and we keep an eye on the time and we secretly check social media on our phone, then clearly we're just at a meeting. But when we come on Sundays and we gather together expecting to meet with the living God, to respond in worship, to hear his word for us, then we're at a meal. A meal that feeds us in a supernatural way. The truth is God wants to remove the barriers in our life so that we can approach him as a friend. The two people on the road to Emmaus believed he was a prophet. They had hoped maybe he might be something more. Some, someone who could change things in their life. And so as they walked, feeling like nothing had changed, just another thing they had pursued, thinking it would fulfill them, you can imagine what they were feeling. Many of you feel like that too. You, you say, okay, if I just marry this right person, then I will feel that fulfillment. If I just get this particular job, then I will feel that fulfillment. If I just have a certain income in my, in my life or a certain amount of money in my bank account, then I will feel that. And you get there and it doesn't do it and you walk to the next thing. That's how they were feeling. Well, that's it. Time to head home. But the reality is, is that Jesus was different than all of that. Jesus was who they needed. Maybe not who they expected, but he was who they needed. And he still is. And so our mission today, post-resurrection, is to bring the living bread to people. We don't want to invite people to a religious meeting. We want to invite others into a relationship with the living God. You probably heard this quote before. It's attributed to D.T. Niles. Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where the bread is. So here's the truth. What we have, what we have is what we invite people into. In Jesus, we find hope. Hope that Hebrews 6.19 says is an anchor for our soul. In Jesus, we find peace. Philippians 4.7, it's peace, says it's peace that passes understanding. Right? It's not just peace that's because like, there's nobody at war. It's peace despite the war, despite the loss. People have asked me when my dad passed, how are you doing? And I said, man, I miss him terribly. But I have peace because he knew Jesus. He's where exactly where he should be. Philippians 4-7 kind of peace. 
In Jesus, we find fulfillment. Jesus said that the reason that he has come is so that you could go to a lot of meetings and feel really guilty about yourself. And no, Jesus said that the reason he has come, John 10, 10, is so that you could have life and have it to the full, abundant life. So the relationships that you think would fulfill you, the money that you think would fulfill you, the power and the position that you think could, could fulfill you, those things are secondary. Jesus fulfills you, and then you operate in those things. You live in those things with the fullness of Jesus, not of relationship or money or anything else. In Jesus, we find fulfillment. In Jesus, we find truth. Jesus said that he would overcome death, and he did. <laughs> I mean, that's what we get to live in. And then he showed up to a whole bunch of people to prove it. And that is what we hang our hat on. Jesus is alive. And, and I love who Jesus showed up to post-resurrection. It was similar to who he showed up to before or who God announced that he was coming in the first place. Remember the shepherds in the field? Like if you're going to pick influential people, it won't be them. If you want the word to spread quickly, the first people that Jesus decided to announce his resurrection to was women. And in that culture, women's, I hate to say this, it might sound bad, but it, it was true, women's witness didn't matter. It wasn't authoritative. They wouldn't be called upon in trials. And yet Jesus sees the women and says, you get to hear first. And you're going to go tell the men. And we're still reminded of that today. No, I'm just kidding. Because <laughs> men are bad with directions, right? <laughs> Jesus flips things upside down. He flips norms upside down. If you wanted to start a movement, a religious movement, it just wouldn't have made sense to do it in that way. But that's how God works. In Jesus, we find truth. And so if you haven't met Jesus... I pray that today would be the day that he opens your eyes. Maybe you're walking away from him right now. Maybe you're walking to the next place that you know to walk. And you're thinking, well, maybe I'll find the answer there. You won't without Jesus. Maybe this morning... And as you sat at the table, as you heard the songs that were sung and the words that were prayed and the truth that was spoken, maybe you approached it like another meeting. And if so, that's what you'll leave with, the thought that you were at a meeting. But I hope that your heart's burned. I hope that they burn right now. I hope that no matter where you are at in your journey, whether you're waiting for him to show up or whether you've given up on it, that the Holy Spirit would burn in your heart and that Jesus would show up where you least expect it. On this side of the resurrection, Jesus is still inviting people to sit with him. And Jesus is still opening their eyes to see him. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate that work that Jesus is doing with a tangible, physical demonstration called baptism. 
And so I want to pray for that and I want to pray for us this morning before we do that. So Lord Jesus, we, I am so grateful, God, that we get to live on this side of the resurrection, that we get to know you and see you. And yet we still are waiting. We're waiting for you to return. But we know that you keep your word. I know that you will. We know that your promises are good because you proved it. And so this morning, Lord God, I ask, may our eyes be opened to the wonderful, life-changing relationship that you're calling us into. May our Sunday gatherings not be like an obligatory ritual, but like a nourishing meal where we gather together and meet with you. May our day-to-day walking and eating and working be full of the presence of God and seasoned with his grace. Jesus, may we belong to you. May our hearts burn, Father, with your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to sermon audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, visit our website at sunsetcommunity.church.